All right, well, if you are just joining us this morning, we are in the Old Testament. We are in the book of 1 Samuel, and this morning we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapters 7 and 8. If you're looking for 1 Samuel, it's the ninth book in your Old Testament, so go ahead and turn there now. 1 Samuel chapter 7. We have a little bit to do before we get there, but that is where we will wind up this morning. Now, I've been asked, why do you study the Old Testament? Why do you study the Old Testament? If you don't have this verse in your brain, write it down. It's going to be Romans 15.4. Romans 15.4. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Rome, said this. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Now, when Paul wrote this, the scriptures were the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. The Holy Spirit was inspiring its writers to put that together at that time. So when Paul says scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. And he says that these things in the Old Testament were written, recorded, and kept for us in order to give us hope. And then also when he's writing to the church in Corinth, in the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, he says, hey, learn from Israel's mistakes. The Old Testament also serves as a warning to us who now are following Christ. So they're written for our instruction, for our encouragement, for our hope. And the Old Testament scriptures are also written to serve as a warning. So that is why we study the Old Testament in addition to the New Testament. And furthermore, uh, as we study the Old Testament, we see God's plan of salvation for Israel and the world unfolding. To really understand what's happening in Jesus' ministry in the New Testament you got to understand what's happening in the Old. So we're going to spend a couple of months together, camped out in the Old Testament, looking at what God is doing in the nation of Israel and through the lives of some of his servants, particularly Samuel, Saul, and David. All right, I trust that by now you found 1 Samuel chapter 7. We missed uh, last week, of course, so let me get us caught up just a little bit. So far in the book, this is what we have seen. Uh, in chapter 1, we saw, a, um, God, we saw a, a barren woman who could not have a son and God um, intervening in her life in order to provide a son. His name is Samuel. He was going to do great things for the people of God. In chapters 2 and 3, we saw the current state of affairs with Israel's leadership. You had Eli, the main priest, and his two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, running the nation um, in a manner opposite of what they were supposed to be doing as taught from the scriptures, the law of Moses. They were using their power and abusing the people. And God said, I'm going to raise up my prophet, Samuel. He's going to be a faithful prophet, a faithful priest, and I'm going to remove the house of Eli. And that's what we saw our last time together uh, in chapter 4. And then chapters 5 and 6, we didn't spend a whole lot of time in. We, we did look at my favorite story in the Old Testament. We'll get to that in just a minute. But what we saw was Israel defeated in battle. The house of Eli, his sons Hophni and Phinehas and Eli all died. God is taking out this wicked, corrupt leadership. And he's going to be bringing in a new leadership. This is a new wave in Israel's history. Right now they are in the period of the judges. If you've never read the book of Judges, make that your devotions for the week. You'll be really encouraged. Just, just kidding. 
It's a dark time. This is Israel's dark ages. But today, by the end of our time together, we're going to be getting out of those dark ages. But the first several chapters, really the first seven chapters in the book of 1 Samuel, is explaining Israel's current state of affairs right now. They are in the dark ages. Things are not going well, and God is transitioning his people from darkness to light. So that's what's happened so far. Last week, we didn't really cover um, chapters 5 and 6. What happened was the nation of Israel was defeated in battle by the Philistines, their arch rivals, and the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. It's this little box, and it was on this box where God said, this, this, I'm going to be here, I'm going to meet my people here. This box is going to represent my actual physical presence on earth. And the Philistines captured it in battle. And what we learned from chapters 5 and 6 as the Ark of the Covenant was on tour around Philistia was that God didn't need the Israelite army to fight his battles. God could take care of himself. And he obliterated the Philistines just with this box. So this story, if you missed it last week, um, the idol that's fallen over and broken up, that's Dagon, that's the Philistine god. Um, you can see he's part fish and he's part man. This is where the whole idea of mermaids and mermen come from, is this guy right here, Dagon. Um, the Philistines, in order to say thank you to Dagon for giving them victory in battle, they put the Ark of the Covenant in his temple, and this is what happened. Day one, uh, Dagon falls down to worship Yahweh, God. Day two, he falls down again after the priest had to help him back up. And this time, his head is cut off and so are his arms. By the end of chapter six, leading into chapter seven, the Ark of the Covenant is back with the people of Israel. So here's also what we saw. In those chapters 5, 6, and 7, I'm sorry, uh, uh, 4, 5, and 6, the prophet Samuel, who's the light of the nation, he's absent from those chapters. And when Samuel is absent, bad things happen. Israel's defeated in battle. Eli, the high priest, dies. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, die. The priesthood is wiped out. The nation is defeated. The army is decimated. The ark of God is captured. So these are the lowest moments. These are the darkest of the dark ages. And Samuel is absent. So in our text today, we're going to pick up in the middle of verse 2, chapter 7, verse 2, 1 Samuel. The prophet comes back. And this is what we see. Follow along with me. Then all the people of Israel turned back to Yahweh, turned back to the Lord. In your Old Testament text, the word Lord there is probably in all caps. It's probably all capitalized. When you see that, that's a reference to God's covenant name as revealed in the book of Exodus. All caps Lord is the proper name Yahweh. That is the name of God. That's the name of our God, the name of Israel's God. The text begins by saying, then all the people of Israel turned back to Yahweh. We're coming out of the period of the judges, out of the dark ages, and what this text is talking about is the word repentance. Repentance. So this Hebrew word literally means to turn. To turn, and you've probably heard this before, repentance is an about face. It's a turning. And this is particularly instructive for us because this idea of turning goes along with the rest of the language that we get about God and his people, Israel, in the Old Testament, and also what we see in the New Testament about this, this, 
this journey with God, this pilgrimage, this walk with God. And so this word, this word repentance, it signifies that relationship. So what's required is when you go from one way or the other way, what's required is that you turn back. And that's what this word repentance means. So here, the people of Israel, after a period of flagrant sin, they are turning back to God. Pick it up with me in verse 3. So Samuel, now he's back. Here's Samuel. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. All right, so this period is characterized, the period of the judges is characterized by idolatry. So Samuel says, all right, if you are returning to the Lord, and notice the language, with all your hearts, repentance isn't merely correct behavior. Sure, that's part of it. Stop sinning. But you're not doing that merely to get something from God. You're doing that out of a sense of heart change. There's an inward change in your heart, and that's reflected in your external behavior. So a change on the inside reflected on the outside. So the prophet's saying, if this inside change has occurred, if that's what's really going on, then demonstrate that by your external obedience. And in this case, put away the foreign gods. And we know Baal, or Baal, his name is listed here in verse 4, but there's another foreign god that we meet, uh, Asherah. The plural form here in our Bibles is the Ashtoreth. This is the Canaanite goddess of fertility. The Canaanite goddess of fertility. And oftentimes, she was thought to be Baal's wife. And what we see during this time period and a little bit later on in Israel's history is that uh, the people of Israel were worshiping her, and instead of calling her Baal's wife, they were calling her Yahweh's wife. So there was this weird mixing of religions happening. The prophet Samuel says, that's got to end. We worship one God, the true and living God. So if you are really doing this, put away all these foreign gods. And then the Lord will deliver you from the hands of your enemies. Look at verse 5. So Samuel says this, Assemble all the people in Israel at Mizpah. And I will intercede, or I will pray on your behalf to the Lord. But here's what happens. Verse 6. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water out and they poured it on the ground before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as the judge of Israel at Mizpah. All right, we read that and we think, that's weird. What are they doing? What's going on? So two things are happening. We see this ritual take place. Samuel says, okay, if you are returning, then let's get right before the Lord. Everybody gather with me here in this place, and let's make our hearts right before the Lord. So what they do when they assemble is they draw water out of a well, and then they dump it on the ground. They dump it on the ground, and this is kind of bizarre to us. We don't really have rituals like this anymore. But here's what's going on. Two factors at play. Number one, the people are fasting. The text tells us that the people are fasting. And what fasting is, is uh, abstaining from food for the sake of religious observance. All right, so you just deny yourself, 
food so that you can wholly focus on the Lord for a brief period of time. Now, extreme fasting is also denying yourself water. Usually when you're fasting, you can drink some water. But here they say, no, we want, we want to be completely, wholly focused on this fast and on returning to the Lord. So take water and dump it out in order to signify that we're not even going to drink water. We want to be right with the Lord. And then secondly, this also serves as an act of purification or ritual purification. And this is a foreign concept to us, but this is what it symbolized. The land was previously full of idols. Now we're going to get rid of the idols and we're going to cleanse our land. So this pouring out of water was extreme devotion in a fast and it was a cleansing or a purification of the land. All right, let's read on. Here's what happens. Verse 7. When the Philistines had heard that Israel assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard about that, they were afraid of the Philistines. And they said to Samuel, Don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel takes a lamb, he sacrifices it to the Lord, and he cries out to the Lord on behalf of Israel. And here's what the text says at the end of verse 9. And the Lord answered him. The Lord answered him. Remember, this is the period of the judges. Turn in your Bibles back to 1 Samuel chapter 3 and look at verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1. Samuel is ministering at the tabernacle. And the text says this, In those days the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. A transition is happening in God's communication with his people. As they turn back to him, communication is then reinitiated. So the Lord answers Samuel. So here's what's going on. The people gather in order to make themselves right before the Lord. Well, the Philistines catch wind of it. Now remember, previously, the Israelites had lost two battles to the Philistines. So in this type of situation, the Philistines are going to put a ban on public gatherings. It's at these gatherings where revolt can happen. So no mass gatherings. You lose in battle, no big public gatherings. When you come to these these gatherings, people oftentimes get ideas, and they start talking, people get excited, and then they rebel. The Philistines didn't want this to happen. So when they catch wind of this, they send their military in order to break up the gathering. And the people here are afraid. Their army was just wiped out by tens of thousands of people. So now they hear the Philistines are coming, like, oh, we're all going to die. The Philistines are going to come and regulate on the situation. So they say, Samuel, cry out to the Lord Here's a word that we just gloss over, our God, the Lord, our God. Previously in the Old Testament, in the period of the judges, when God was referenced, oftentimes it was your God, speaking to a prophet. Now the people are saying, our God. They recognize that they need help, they need deliverance. The Philistine army is coming. They say, Samuel, get our God to help. So Samuel cries out, and the Lord answers. Take a look at verse 10. While Samuel was offering that sacrifice, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, Yahweh thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines. And they threw them into such, or he threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. 
the men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way. All right, so here's what's going on. Samuel cries out, and actual thunder comes from heaven. Now, at this time, um, weather phenomenon was interpreted as the gods intervening in battle. So remember, what just happened in chapters 5 and 6? This, a box beat the Philistines, right? So the people are crying out to the Lord for help. The Philistines show up, and then they hear thunder. Are they thinking back to their previous victories against Israel? Or are they thinking back to their most recent encounter with Israel's God? Yeah, they're thinking back to this. So they hear this thunder and they think, oh no, Israel's God has showed up. We're doomed. And it throws them into a panic. And then Israel routs the Philistines. They kill the enemies. And the text says in verse 13 that the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Parentheses, for a little bit. They'll be back. They'll be back. The chapter wraps up this way. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. And what we're going to see by the time we get to King David is that his main mission from God was to kill Philistines. It was to defeat the Philistines, to protect the people of God, to shepherd the people, to secure the borders, and to defeat the, Israel, uh, uh, the Philistines. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. Look at this in verse 15. Samuel continued as Israel's judge all the days of his life. And this is what he would do. Year by year, he would go on a circuit visiting some of these major territories in Israel. And he would act as a judge in those places. The chapter ends this way, verse 17. But he always came back to his home, to Ramah. And there he also held court for Israel. The text says this too. It ends in an interesting way. And he built an altar there the Lord. Now, as we read the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we see very clearly you don't build any other altars except the one altar where the tabernacle and then later the temple is going to be. But previously, the Philistines had destroyed the altar. So there was no place for for Samuel to offer sacrifices. So he builds an altar and he's serving as Israel's leader, as Israel's judge. All right? All right, now track with me. We're going to transition into chapter 8. And this is where things get real interesting here. Verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's judges. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. And they served with him at Beersheba. Verse 3. But... His sons did not follow his ways. Does that sound familiar? They turned aside after dishonest gain, and they accepted bribes, and they perverted justice. Who does that sound like? Yeah, Eli, Hophni, Phineas. Read chapters 2 and 3 if you need a refresher. Um, okay, so... Samuel's old, he's about to die, he appoints his two sons, Joel and Abijah, to be judges over the people. The text says, they turned aside after dishonest gain, they accepted bribes, they perverted justice. Okay, 
So the law can be kind of confusing. Deuteronomy 16 has a section on being a judge in the nation of Israel. Maybe they just misunderstood it, right? Well, let's see what the text says. Here's what Deuteronomy says. Sorry, let's jump, jump far up. Up, here we go. Yeah, here's what it says. Do not pervert justice. Don't take a bribe. That's it. Make Yahweh known to the people. Don't do these things. And what the narrator is doing, he takes that exact language and he applies it to Samuel's sons. Don't pervert justice. Don't take a bribe. What do these guys do? They took bribes. They perverted justice. Here's how the people respond. So all the elders of Israel, they gathered together and they came to Samuel and they said this, Hey, you're old. Nice way to start a speech. That's what the text says, literally, verse 5. You are old. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Okay, I skipped forward on a couple of slides. Let's back up. This is what God says to the people in the book of Leviticus, chapter 20. You are to be holy to me, because I, the Lord, am holy. I've set you apart from the nations to be my own. You're not supposed to be like all the other nations. This line is going to haunt them throughout the rest of 1 and 2 Samuel. Give us a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. You don't get that. You are the one people group on earth that has God serving as king. That's called a theocracy. Theo, God, and then ocracy, the form of government. A theocracy. God serving as king. Now you want to abandon that and you want to go to a monarchy. And all of this is prompted because of bad kids. Again, the great men in the books of Samuel have lousy kids, with one exception, Jonathan. We'll meet him in a couple of weeks. You might be a great man, That doesn't give you an excuse to be a lousy parent. You have to pour into your kids first, and then the people. So here we see it again. You have this great man, Samuel, the light in the dark ages, the one that God is using to turn the people back to him. And his kids are rotten. And because of that, the people want to abandon God as king, and they want a human king. They don't want to go back to a Hophni and Phinehas-style government. It's characterized by murder and rape and taking what belongs to God, taking that for themselves. They don't want that. So they say, give us a king so we can be like everybody else. Verse 6, when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. The text says, what, he complained? He rebelled? He threw a fit? Those are all things that Israel's kings are going to do. What does Samuel do? He prays to God. His first response is always prayer. Things are going badly, pray. Talk to God about it. We're going to meet a guy named Saul next week. This is not his first response to bad situations. Keep that in mind. The prophet prays to God. Verse 7, the Lord told him, hey, listen to what the people are saying to you. It's not you that they have rejected. but They have rejected me as their king. 
as they've done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt until this day. They forsake me and they serve other gods. So now they're doing this to you. Go ahead, listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And this entire next paragraph, verses 10 through 18, is known as the way of the king. And I thought I would just summarize it here for you. This is what the king gets to do. Are you sure you want to do this? He gets to force military service. Hey, you love your sons? He's going to take them. The text says what he's going to do is that he's going to put your sons in front of him so that he doesn't die in battle, but your sons are going to die. Forced military service. Forced servanthood. Well, not everybody can be a soldier. Some people are going to have to be mechanics. Someone's going to have to make the weapons. Someone's going to have to farm, you know, to feed the army. It's going to take your daughters as well. They're going to be bakers and cooks and perfumers and all that stuff. So you lose your sons and you lose your daughters. Not only that, but he's going to take your stuff and he's going to give it to his rich friends who are helping him out. Thanks for helping the king. Here, take this guy's field. Taxation. He's going to tax you pretty heavily because wars are expensive and he wants to get rich. On top of that, he's going to take the best people you have, your best leaders, your brightest minds, oh, and all your best animals too. He's going to take all that. And you know what else? More taxes. More taxes. So much for a benevolent, loving king. This guy's going to be a harsh dictator. In verse 18, God says this through his prophet. When that day comes, when you get your king, you're going to cry out for relief from the king that you've chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in this day. Hey, the responsibility's on you. You have abandoned me as king. You wanted this king. I gave him to you. So the language that's used here is reminiscent of the period of the judges. So the period of the judges is characterized this way. Um, the people sin. They are oppressed by the enemy. They cry out to God. They get temporary deliverance, and then they go back and they recycle the sin pattern. It's the same language here, except there's no deliverance. The deliverance step is missing. So this is going to be exactly like the period of the judges. Guys, you're going backwards. I'm bringing you out of the dark ages. I've given you light. I am your king, and you want to abandon me for this guy who's going to take you back? I mean, all right. If that's what you want to do, don't come crying. Verse 19, after this harsh warning, the people refused to listen to Samuel. They said, no, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Fight our battles? Wait, what? Remember what the box just did to your enemies? Remember how God just showed up? When the Philistines were attacking and he thundered from heaven and he defeated the Philistines a second time? You want that, that person fighting your battles. You don't want a human king. What do you think's coming on the horizon? Victory or defeat? Defeat. Verse 21, when Samuel heard all the people, he repeated this to the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to him. Give him a king. So Samuel sends everybody home. Again, cue the music. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Bad times are coming. Sure, there's going to be some good times. God's going to make some great promises that are going to impact us, the church. He's going to make those early on in the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to meet some incredible people along the way. 
But Israel, who turned back to the Lord, just abandoned him a chapter later. And this goes back to that repentance language that we saw at the beginning of the chapter. Repentance, that turning. And as I was going through this, it just reminded me so much of our condition as people of faith. How one day we're turning to the Lord, and the next day we're turning away from the Lord. And I just thought, man, how gracious is our God? The grace of God is going to be on display in the weeks ahead, as we see the people turning away from him, after they repented, they turned away from him. Sure, bad things are going to happen, but God never abandons his people. He's still there. He still meets their needs. He still provides for them. They have to learn their lessons, to be sure. They take their lumps. But God never abandons his people. The grace of God is deep and long-suffering. Amen? I like that we had that snow delay, and I guess the sermon would have been preached last week anyway, but this falls on a communion Sunday, and I just think that this is so perfect that we get these chapters on a communion Sunday, Um, because Jesus saw this coming, did he not? I mean, Jesus knew that we would be a people who one day repent and the next day turn back to sin, so he instituted communion as a perpetual reminder for the people of God of what he accomplished on their behalf. And we get to remember that as a family this morning, what Jesus did for us. So at this time, I want to invite the worship team to come back up. Uh, The elders are going to be handing out the communion elements. What we're going to do first is we're going to take the bread. We'll take that all together, so hold on to it when it's passed out. And then after that, we'll pass out the juice. We'll take that together as well. Um, And we'll come back up in between, and we'll talk about communion. Uh, As the group's coming up, let me just close us with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, it's just amazing how your spirit superintends what happens on a Sunday morning. You're so present here and you're so involved in our circumstances. So God, I thank you that we can study something like repentance, turning to you, and then also seeing what happens when we turn away. And God, I thank you too for communion, also known as the Lord's Supper, what Jesus instituted in order to remind us a wayward, wandering, forgetful people of the salvation that he provided so that when we turn away, we have this reminder to turn back. God, I pray that we would remember your forgiveness and your grace this morning as we remember what Jesus did on our behalf 2,000 years ago. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.